0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and over the next half hour, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators. We'll get to those questions in just a bit, but I want to thank everybody who's taken the time to uh, watch us over the first 200 episodes of our SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's been a pleasure being a part of your international edification. And we look forward to sharing our opinions and thoughts and uh, and ideas on where you can be taking your international education strategies at your institutions, and how the world of world's events affect what we do every day. So, uh, as we do each week, we take our newsletter, uh, content that comes out on Mondays on at 9 a.m. Eastern, and for those of you not familiar, we have a newsletter called All the SMIE News Fit to Share, which next week, coincidentally, will be ce- celebrating its 200th edition. Uh, it's our weekly attempt to share our thoughts on top social media news as well as international education news in our industry, and that Those two combinations, social media and international education. That's the SMIE of SMIE Consulting, social media and international ed consulting. So with this newsletter, we give you a couple of different ways that you can subscribe. I've dropped a link to the uh, website for our SMIEconsulting.org slash subscribe opportunity to, to subscribe to that. Uh, you can also, uh, we're going to drop the link to the most recent edition, so if you haven't yet gotten it, you'll be able to go follow along with us today. If you're watching on Facebook or if you're watching on uh, YouTube, you'll get the links in the comments section as we're going along live. Uh, that will have all the relevant uh, content that you need but you can also subscribe through our LinkedIn uh, version of our newsletter just drop the link to that as well in the chat so uh, if you follow me on LinkedIn uh, if you go to uh, these, these articles come out on Mondays around 8:30, 9:00 a.m. in the morning, Eastern Time, and then you can just drop in the links uh, or drop in your details to subscribe. Either click the button on the LinkedIn version or the online version for the newsletter site uh, from our website. So happy to talk to you today about three issues that I think are very timely in this uh, cycle uh, that we've entered a new. Academic year has begun on most American campuses with a few just coming up in the next week or two. But uh, the first uh, story we're going to talk about today or uh, question we're going to ask today is what do international students need on campus uh, at this point in their, in, the, in the history of international education in our countries. Uh, we're coming out of a pandemic, a global pandemic that has really challenged and stretched international offices and campuses around the country, around the world, has fundamentally changed the way we conduct education in a lot of ways on our university campuses uh, in terms of how classes are taught, uh, where they are taught, the sizes that they're taught, and whether they're online or in person, all of these have been affected by the pandemic. But we talk about our campuses as being effective. Our students have been dramatically Im- impacted by what uh, COVID-19 has brought to this world and how it has impacted what we do, what they do uh, every day of their lives. So when we talk about what do international students need on campus, it goes beyond just what we used to talk about. And that was a, a strong orientation program that covered all the basics on immigration, on health insurance, on in- academic integrity, uh, to much larger issues of, of mental health uh, care and uh, student well-being and how our campuses can assess and take care of students. Uh, that might be coming from countries where, frankly, uh, those, uh, the topics of mental health are not ones that have been freely discussed, maybe not even to this day um, with the pandemic. So we're looking at a couple different articles today uh, that are relevant for what this topic is talking about, the issues of what do our international students need. First is from University World News, and this covers kind of a very appropriate post-pandemic look at how, from a macro scale, how things have changed. And it's a University World News post uh, where it talks about the roller coaster ride for international students of the last couple of years, uh, the anxiety and uncertainty about the future with the pandemic, regulatory battles, and uh, global economic recession. All of these things that have impacted students attempts to study outside their home countries and uh, it also focuses on uh, what we all know all too well how much China and India dominate the outbound student markets uh, for um, for most countries, they're number one and number two. Maybe not, maybe in reverse order in some countries. But those two certainly make up the lion's share of uh, student international student populations in the U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, all other kind other of major destination markets. So we look at what uh, what what institutions need to do, uh, even for these larger populations that have probably have better support structures in place. Uh, maybe not from the institution themselves, but from Indian student associations, Chinese student associations. Maybe uh, there's a, an extended uh, diaspora community for uh, Indian uh, immigrants and Chinese immigrants to uh, your your region, uh, to your cities that might be able to provide a larger support network. But you think about it, even those students would need additional support on campus because of the, the issues that have, the pandemic has, has brought up. In um, in their lives, uh, and in terms of what uh, attracting and retaining international students is always should be top of the list of uh, of not only just bringing them in, but taking care of them once they're on campus. Because if you're not doing that well, uh, you're really failing as an institution. And that will likely backfire all the positive impact you might have had bringing students in uh, by getting them in the doors, convincing them you, you have everything that they need. And then the, if the reality turns out to be far from it, then the negative implications to your institution can be quite significant. So having that balance between strong recruitment and strong services on the, on the back end to take care of those students and address things like the well-being quotient that uh, talks about things beyond uh, scholarships and academic help. It's talking about a sense of belonging, frankly, in a very different environment to what they're used to. Uh, That lack of that inclusion or that belonging can make them feel, uh, frankly, mentally and emotionally vulnerable, as this article points out. And they look for uh, students look for uh, systemic in the as the article says systemic inclusion and integration both socially as well as through technology So as I mentioned there there may be some student support groups or student organizations that help can provide that social support for them but the uh, the mental and health mental health and well-being of those students outside of the classroom uh, is inside and outside the classroom is something well that are living on campus or in the area around campus institutions certainly be, need to be paying a higher attention to. And that's certainly something that I believe uh, most institutions have realized, the need for stronger mental health services, not just for their domestic students, but also for their international students. But there are, as I said, additional challenges with mental health that uh, in addressing those concerns that. Uh, students from many cultures that come to the United States are not coming from places that really even recognize uh, mental uh, mental uh, health concerns or disease as a real as a reality, uh, and that's something that. Um, Take some, uh, take some getting used to, take some education, take some uh, familiar faces to help convince them that, yes, it's okay to go talk to someone about uh, challenges you might be having, not just tuck everything away and suppress everything that you're, you're feeling that might be negatively impacting what you do as a student. So there's a lot that's happening here uh, and has happened on campus to, I think, start to address these issues. But the, the problem are these cultural barriers and uh, a lack of awareness of what's going on and the availability and uh, accessibility of, of support services in this, refa- in this res- respect. So it kind of adds to the ongoing challenges that uh, we have. And we talked about this last week, how do you solve a problem like orientation? We all know in international orientation that we always, almost always to a fault over over communicate uh, and oftentimes over saturate the new international students and with the co- with the, the rules and regulations and everything else we're trying to tell them about their campus experience that they need to know to do well and some of that is need to know some of that is want to know uh so it's a matter of prioritizing as we talked about last time beyond those three initial three things their immigration regulations uh health insurance and academic uh, regulations. Beyond those three that you must have, what are the next most important things that need to be covered? And how do you cover them? When do you cover them? Do you do it all in the orientation week? Hopefully not. Hopefully you can cover some of the more obvious chunks beforehand and some of the less obvious chunks and maybe future-oriented chunks uh, after they are enrolled, after they've gone through orientation once they're settled in classes through ongoing orientation options. So how does that happen? There are uh, we've we've seen cases of uh, the rise of pre-departure orientations where you. Uh, Try and fill as much of of your students' arrival months, weeks, and months before they get to campus with content that they can assimilate and kind of prepare themselves for. Most of that might be around the academic coursework, uh, around uh, logistics of getting to campus, those types of things. But you also need to know uh, other impacts uh, that uh, you can maybe deploy afterwards. Uh, after they've arrived and and following up with uh, programs and uh, communication to the student community, new student community especially, about mental health, about well-being. But you can touch on those issues as uh, as early as the pre-departure orientations just to let them know that, hey, uh, if something happens, we want to know, and, and if something's not feeling right, we want you to know we, we have uh, services in place to take care of you. And these, this may also be something you want to begin laying the seeds for with parents, especially for undergraduates, talking about the kind of services and what that looks like on campus and how uh, uh, that may be, may be involving some of your current students of current parents of students who have maybe gone through some of these issues can maybe speak to some of the cultural taboos and their fears about and then the realities of what their child experienced once they were enrolled Uh, so that and had uh, had service uh, from the university so that's a great point uh, in this university news uh, world news article uh, talking about the those logistical barriers and uh, the pre-departure orientations but I also want to turn to a, a piece from uh, it's actually part of a podcast that um, uh, my good friend, Rajika Vandari, uh, who, uh, who I've worked with in the past at IAE and who's now uh, been out on her own is a successful published author and has her own podcast as well. I uh, always recommend that. That's America Calling. Uh, take on intersections of education, culture, and mitigation, and migration. That's her uh, podcast, and then her book, America Calling a Foreign Student in a Country of Possibilities, kind of documents her journey uh, as an international student coming to the United States from India and how she's uh, immigrated to the United States after she finished her studies. So she has uh, prepared in her, uh, for one of her recent editions, uh, a blog post that accompanies that that she calls... Uh, what do, does it take to succeed as an international student? And it's, these are five things that she's uh, developed from her own experiences and her work, uh, her work in international education over the past 20 years, uh, getting a sense of what's, what's really needed in the field uh, to, uh, uh, to for students to feel comfortable. So this is these are things that we've all uh, we've all dealt with uh, in international student orientation. So what's here is not should not necessarily be a surprise to th- as an international student advisor, international admissions person. These are things you talk about. Uh, but it's also good reminders for ourselves when we're approaching, uh, the topics of international student care as to the che- kind of many mini checklist of things we need to be making sure that, that we're accommodating in our orientation, in our communications, in pre-departure and uh, on arrival as well. Uh, first up is be prepared for different classroom culture. Uh, really spells it out pretty clearly in terms of, uh, we, we talk about this, you ask the question, how many of you squirm at the thought of calling your professors by their first names or raising your hand in class or even asking a question of your professor? That's the reality that for most students, when they come to the U.S. higher ed, higher ed system, the academic environment is radically different from what they're used to. Uh, and we know this if we've been in international ed for a while, but those reminders are always helpful to get that from a, from a former international student perspective and how they overcame those challenges. So it's a matter of uh, orienting yourself to looking through the experience from a new students' eyes. And if you can do that, you really, I, I think, are putting yourself as the advent advantage and be able to talk with those students about some of the concerns they're probably going to have that you want to maybe preemptively discuss and how they can get over these these issues. Second uh, topic she covers is prepare to experiment with your learning. Uh, so that's uh, cha- talking about changing your study habits where uh, in most countries, if it's um, a rote memorization in terms of how you ta- you basically take notes of everything the professor says in the class and then you try and regurgitate that on the final exam, don't expect that in the United States. That it's going to be very different. There will be various ways you'll be uh, examined throughout the year, uh, throughout the course of an academic term, uh, through quizzes, through tests, through papers, through classroom participation and how important that is. That um, she also makes the point about scholarships are there, but students will have to dig for them. Uh, That's, you know, we all have our maybe our merit scholarships that initial students can qualify for, but there's always going to be these small department scholarships that students might not hear about or know about until after they've gotten on campus. So uh, it's about casting that wide of a net to find out what's out there, Uh, but educating students on what that process looks like once they're in the country. And it's also sharing with the, those, your future students or your incoming students, your new students, once they've arrived on campus, that uh, making sure that they know that, uh, remember, that they're coming to the United States for more than just an academic opportunity, that it's really about a life experience, a cultural experience, a work and life experience that they're not going to get uh, anywhere else. It's going to be very uniquely American. There, with the classroom experiences they're going to have with the U.S. U.S. students, with other international students, with the professors that are going to uh, become their mentors uh, that help them grow as, as uh, budding professionals in their field. So that is all about the the, uh, the life beyond the classroom. That uh, aspect of what we talk about in uh, American international education is that. Coming to the United States, doing well in classrooms is great, but if that's all you do is get a good grade and not really get involved on campus, not really explore activities, explore the area that you're living in, get to know your community, get to know other U.S. students. If you don't take advantage of that out-of-classroom time to really maximize your education, you've missed out on more than half of what the U.S. higher ed education system has to offer. So that's why I think it's more than just an academic opportunity and reinforcing that message. And that final piece is, this is your chance to become a global citizen. And that's, uh, I, I think, w- w- more than anything else, we see that uh, in our in our role. We've talked about what it means to become um, uh, uh, countries that have these global visions for their countries, that the U.S. wants to practice public diplomacy and educate future world leaders uh, not only to um, improve the economy of the United States, but improve our relations with other other countries. Uh, and that's uh, that education that these uh, international students get on our college campuses helps them become those global citizens, more aware of the world around them. And that's something we hope for all of our students, domestic or international. So, Rajka obviously makes some excellent points here in in that in that answering that question of what do international students need on campus. And moving on to our second question, this is one that uh, is constantly on the minds of international recruiters, international admissions people, not only in the United States, but around the world. And that is, how can we unlock or make ground in Africa? Uh, We know uh, that uh, there are countries that have been doing particularly well in Africa for years. Obviously, former colonial ties for the British, for the French universities have helped them have significant footholds on the continent. Uh, We've seen the U.S. having done well uh, without really intentionally going after the African market outside of a few elite institutions that have uh, bandwidth and and uh, funding to continually uh, invest time and effort and resources in traveling to uh, recruit in Africa over the past decade or, two or more. Uh, you all always see um, um, see reports of Africa as the next uh, m- major destination or source con- source region for uh, international students, and that's true. Uh, is the continent with the fastest growing youth population under 25? In the globe, or around the globe, uh, so that is an area that all all uh, international, internationally minded institutions that are looking to grow beyond India and China need to be looking uh, and developing strategies that might work in this region. Now, how that happens, uh, it will vary from institution to institution. But what I, we're, we're basing this article, uh, this question on, is a piece from our friends at Intet. Uh, that they talk about when traditional markets weaken, look to Africa. There's a two part series. Uh, part one uh, it was out last week, and part two just came out today. Uh, it focuses on seven key markets uh, Tanzania, Kenya, and Ethiopia, and Morocco, Ghana, Nigeria, and South Africa. Now, those are the top sending countries to the United States and the top growing uh, kind of population areas uh, that are. Uh, seem to be good markets uh, for the United States. So uh, that uh, he, they define it uh, the best these best markets on on the continent f- by three criteria growing youth population, rising incomes, and employment opportunities for returning graduates. And then we got to keep in mind that uh, student visa as it stands now is a non-immigrant student visa, even though there are possibilities for students to stay in the country and work and potentially get a work visa after they're done with their OPT. Uh, that's not always a guarantee, and uh, for an 18-year-old that might be coming to the United States for the first time, that can't be uh, their intention to stay in the country, at least their spoken intention when they go for their visa interviews. So having those rep- employment opportunities for returning students is increasingly important uh, for them to qualify for those initial visas. So uh, that there are op- employment opportunities uh, that are abounding in certain markets that are very attractive for returning students, so that's encouraging them to take that step and take that risk to go abroad for their degree and come back. Uh, just had a conversation uh, or he- hearing about a conversation with a, an alumni of an institution I'm working with now that's uh, a successful alum who came, <clears throat> came to our institution on a, initially a track scholarship, uh, finished her bachelor's degree, uh, finished her master's degree as well, and is now uh, working for a Shoe company uh, and, uh, and kind of building on what she learned as a uh, as a student on our campus with uh, her our undergraduate and graduate degrees uh, in, physio- um, in, uh, uh, in kinesiology and uh, uh, exercise science and how that's uh, developed along with her track interests uh, to to become uh, successful in what she's doing now with her work for U.S. Uh, shoe manufacturer, uh, athletic shoe manufacturer. So she's uh, she's got a great story uh, coming from not one of these seven markets, but from Zimbabwe, talking about her experiences uh, on campus and how that led to getting her pro- her degree program and the job afterwards. Uh, but those employment opportunities, she got a job in the U.S. But the, those, ex- those in her country they might not exist, but in other regions uh, of the country in Africa they certainly would if she chose to return now what's uh, what is what's important about African uh, nations here that as I mentioned there's there's a pretty significant competition out there for these these markets uh, for these students in these markets we've seen uh, I mentioned the UK I mentioned France having colonial ties that they're still um, pulling significant numbers of students from in fact um, if you look at uh, for English-speaking destinations and this is the odd one The number one English-speaking destination or English-speaking university programs that are drawing African students away is China. China is the largest source, uh, enrolls the largest number of African students for English-speaking programs in China, uh, followed by uh, the UK and US, Uh, US and UK, depending on which way you're looking at it, which year. So uh, we see significant competition. We see institutions from the Middle East also start to uh, attract uh, students from Africa to their to their programs. Uh, in the Gulf, uh, so there's uh, there's a recognition on a lot of countries around the world that Africa is a market that you, that you need to have a presence in, that you need to be growing in, uh, and it can be uh, uh, represent a significant source and diversification of your international student populations on your campus. So they, uh, in, their, in, a, in their two-part series, part one today, and uh, next week's I'll link to the Part two edition in the newsletter probably won't cover it during the chat next Wednesday, but uh, they cover these seven countries in depth. Uh, really give you some great data from uh, from uh, from the from Brookings, from the United Nations, from a few other uh, resources that share uh, kind of the insights into why these countries have that growing uh, growing middle class that's necessary to potentially afford a US higher education, that have the returning uh, opportunities for. Uh, for um, for jobs when they get back, so you really see that um, uh, these countries rise quickly to the should rise quickly to the tops of your list. So, uh, to part one addresses Nigeria, Kenya, and and Ghana, the three top markets. Uh, then uh, in the next article, we'll talk about South Africa, uh, Morocco, and Tanzania and Ethiopia. So those are the four or seven countries that uh, they'll be covering in the series. So well worth a look. I uh, definitely uh, encourage you all to take uh, take some time and uh, have a look at these uh, uh, as to why they should be on your radar and certainly uh, Africa is going to be on our radar from for institutions I'm working with um, the Education USA Regional Forum for Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, is going to be taking place in the spring of 2023. Uh, not sure where that's going to be yet, but uh, that's certainly one if you're looking to get engaged in Africa and at the top level and kind of figure out where get the lay of the land where some countries are that might be good fits for your institution. That's a place to start. Uh, so uh, with that at USA Regional Forum. But definitely read these two articles from INTED uh, that, that have just come, down, come out in the last few days, uh, and that'll be a good starter, starter point for you if you're not already uh, getting active in the African market. Now, our final question of the day. It's one that's a uh, uh, truth in advertising. I used to uh, work for IDP Connect uh, that does uh, uh, for higher ed consulting work for U.S. institutions and uh, uh, recruitment services. So. Um, um, one of my institutions, we currently work with them as well with IDP. And the article, uh, or the question is, is IDP's revenue growth a surprise? And if you saw the news in the Pi News last week, um, IDP posted a 50% growth in revenues year on year in fiscal year 22, uh, with uh, stru- student placements uh, going uh, expanding, really booming uh, with in this past year, and uh, with a, a rebounding in IELTS testers now one of the one of the reasons obviously during the pandemic ielts was not a test that uh, students the testing centers were closed they had to do ielts at home version uh, that um, or ielts indicator test and that uh, uh, was an online version of it was not as not as uh, hugely embraced as a replacement for the uh, academic IELTS but certainly one that uh, a number of institutions did accept uh, as a kind of pandemic-related measure uh, alternative for, um, for students who uh, couldn't take the academic English in, in a test center. So uh, what, uh, one of the other reasons that uh, IDP has seen a strong rebound in IELTS is that they now are responsible for all IELTS examinations in India. Uh, which, uh, for those that uh, have been following the news in the last year or two, British Council gave up its uh, its stake in IELTS centers, test centers in India, uh, to I D P. and I D P. British Council and Cambridge English are co-owners of the I D P. exam or the IELTS exam. So, uh, up until the last two years, uh, UK and uh, Australian version, or British Council and I L and I D P. were. Both offering IELTS exam in India so uh, that's changed now it's uh, now just uh, IDP that offers IELTS in India so having the full share of the Indian market certainly has helped them rebound as well so you uh, you, th- you think about just looking at the numbers from this uh, from this art IELTS uh, or this IDP article uh, they had now record record revenue of seven hundred ninety three million Uh, For final uh, fiscal year 22, uh, which ended in in uh, in June, so we look at what that meant uh, for uh, for IDP. Uh, This is a company that started in the mid 80s, uh, working for uh, Australian universities, uh, and and then uh, as their agents, uh, they've also IDP, as I mentioned, are co owners of the uh, IELTS exam, so they have two very strong pieces of that, uh, of the agent piece and also the uh, testing piece, but uh, they've also expanded to uh, the uh, lead generation side for uh, through uh, their in- initial acquisition of hot courses about six or seven years ago to now uh, what they call IDP Connect, which provides uh, lead generation service through, um, I think, to 14 different uh, global uh Hot Courses or Hot Courses branded sites uh, that are also multi can be multilingual or are offered in native language uh, for 10 different, I think 10 or, 10 or 11 different languages worldwide. Uh, that, 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 uh, that's a piece of the business that obviously has grown significantly uh, to uh, attract more uh, institutional buy-in. Uh, the, those institutions that buy into their lead gen services do not always uh, also buy into the agent side of IDP. So there's, uh, there's different revenue streams that they have from institutions, from student placements, from lead generation services, and then from IELTS test exams. So they really have a, a fairly broad assortment of uh, uh, pieces of the pie, international student enrollment pie, that uh, have expanded their revenue base uh, considerably by 50% in the past year. So uh, we're talking about, obviously, uh, the company that is probably, if, if, if this continues, obviously it might be a few years before they get there, but if it continues, you are looking at potentially the first billion dollar revenue per year company in international education. So that that may be maybe a topic down the road that we'll cover again in terms of what that looks like. Perhaps after uh, the aging aggregators are have a few years under their belt, and we'll see what that they look like in, in in the coming years in terms of their their net their overall revenue. But a lot to talk about uh, in the field of international ed tech. We've seen the billions that have been, are, or the millions that have been thrown into um, venture capital uh, funding for a lot of these. Uh, unicorn uh, ed tech companies over the last four or five years and uh, that may very well continue but the the track record certainly shows that um, the IDP one of the biggest and longest standing, uh, international ed businesses out there is, uh, is, is still the biggest and probably will be for the foreseeable future, but see if anyone can challenge them for that title. But uh, we see a very crowded field in, uh, in the service provider sector of international education, uh, one that uh, there will be probably future consolidation in, in the coming uh, years uh, with uh, the, all these ed techs that have been popping up. There's already talk of some of them consolidating, uh, but we'll, we'll see what happens. But we do, uh, as we do each week, we thank you for joining us for these uh, live chats, and we hope that you find the content usable for you uh, in uh, what you do at your institutions uh, in international education. And until we see you again either next week or in a future conference down the road, uh, have a wonderful day, and we'll talk to you soon. Cheers.